0: I'm James McDougal a barrister at Tenold Square all trust lawyers know about the statutory power of advancement section 32 of the trustee act gives trustees the power to accelerate a beneficiary's interest in trust capital by paying or applying up to 100% of his share for his benefit they may do this whether his entitlement to that share is vested or contingent in possession or in remainder and whether or not defeasible by the exercise of a power in some cases the trustees will not merely be accelerating a future entitlement, they may actually be redirecting the trust capital, by applying it for the benefit of a person in whom it would not otherwise have vested. The statutory power is subject to an important proviso. In section 32 The trustees cannot exercise the power in a manner that will prejudice any person entitled to any prior life or other interests, unless that person is in existence and sui juris, And gives their consent. For example, a beneficiary entitled to the trust income may veto the exercise of the statutory power because it will diminish the capital fund from which he draws his income. Apart from a fixed interest in income, what other beneficial interests do the words prior life or other interest embrace? The courts have previously held that beneficiaries of a discretionary trust of income do not have a prior interest. See Beckett's settlement. The authors of Lewin on trusts have also tentatively suggested that a remainderman, at least if he is alive, has an interest in capital prior to any interest which depends on the failure of his interests. More recently, learning on the meaning of Section 32 has been scarce, but in the recent case of Womble, Bond, Dickinson, Trust Corporation Limited and Glenn, which was decided in March this year, Master Clark considered the section in some detail and gave a ruling on the nature of a prior interest. The facts of Glen were as follows. The trustees of a family settlement resolved to wind up one of the trust funds and to make a final distribution of its assets. Their plan was to exercise the statutory power of advancement to pay the trust capital to certain beneficiaries absolutely. Before doing so, the trustees issued a Part 8 claim asking the court for, among other things, a ruling on whether the statutory power could be exercised in the manner proposed. The trusts on which the relevant fund was held were drafted using the Hancock and Watson formula. For those not familiar with this drafting technique, it directs an initial gift or trust absolutely in favour of certain persons in certain shares, but it then goes on to say that the initial gift does not in fact vest absolutely in that beneficiary, but is cut down by so-called engrafted trusts, which are then spelled out in the subsequent clauses. The rule of construction derived from Hancock and Watson, which was a decision of the House of Lords in 1902, is that if the engrafted trusts fail, the initial absolute gift will nevertheless take effect. In Glen, the initial trusts were for ten of the settlers' mostly adult grandchildren, each of whom thereby became entitled to a tenth share of the fund absolutely. But the trust instrument went on to state that each share was impressed with engrafted trusts, which provided as follows. First, that the income of the share be paid to the grandchild during his lifetime. Second, and subject to that income interest, that the share be held, as to both income and capital, on entailed interests for the grandchild's sons and their issue. Third, and subject to both of those foregoing trusts, that the share be held on trust, as to income and capital, for the grandchild absolutely. Master Clark ruled that the trusts were indeed in the Hancock and Watson form, with the result that each grandchild had an absolute interest in capital as a result of the initial gift, and a similar, or perhaps even identical, absolute interest under the engrafted default trust of capital. So there was no doubt that the trustees could exercise the statutory power of advancement in the grandchildren's favour. The real question was whether there was any person with a prior interest in the share whose consent was needed to the exercise of the power. Under the engrafted trusts, those primarily entitled to capital were the unborn sons and remoter issue entail of the grandchildren. It seems that the trustees accepted that these entailed interests in favour of the unborn issue were logically prior to the grandchildren's own default interests in capital under the engrafted trusts, Therefore, should the trustees have wanted to exercise the statutory power of advancement for the grandchildren on the basis of their default interests only, they would have needed the consent of the unborn issue. However, the trustees argued that since each grandchild also had an absolute interest in his share under the Hancock and Watson formula, albeit one that was defeasible by the birth of a son, this conferred a distinct right to capital which was prior to all other interests. The master accepted this argument. Master Clark held that the word prior referred to the order in which the trust property is enjoyed, a life interest being enjoyed before the interest in remainder. Master Clark went on to say, In this case, my starting point is the position if a son is born to a grandchild. This would cause the grandchild's absolute interest to become a life interest, limiting their entitlement to the income of the trust property. That interest is a prior life interest to that of the son. It follows that the son's interest, even when unborn, is not prior, but subsequent to that of the grandchild, and falls outside paragraph C of the proviso. In my judgment, therefore, the interests of the unborns under the trust deed are not a prior life or other interest, and the trustees are accordingly entitled to exercise the power unfettered by section 32C. There has been no appeal from this decision, and there is no authority which directly contradicts it. Furthermore, the decision seems, in the moral sense, right, because it enabled the trustees to take steps which were practical, expedient, and probably in the interests of all the beneficiaries. However, with respect to all those involved, I believe the reasoning should be treated with a degree of caution. The success of the claim depended on showing that the grandchildren's Hancock and Watson interests were prior, to the engrafted entailed interests of their unborn issue whereas it was conceded that the ultimate default interests under the engrafted trusts were not those two interests of the grandchildren differed in the form in which they were drafted but it is not obvious to me that they differed in substance in both cases they conferred absolute interests on the grandchildren which were subject to and so could not fall into possession until the failure of the engrafted entailed interests in favour of the unborn class. Therefore it is not clear to me why one of the grandchildren's two interests in capital should be considered prior to the entailed interests, but the other not. Maybe the editors of Lewin, in the next edition of that work, will be able to shed some light on this difficult question.